Let's get rolling. Well, let's pick up where we left off last week. As you know, we've been in this series called The New Man. Uh, and I think it's been good in the sense that we, I mean, the, the bottom line is this. Until we know who we are in Christ, we are ineffective to the kingdom of God. It's understanding who he told us that we are. Because with that comes an authority. And we have seen that as we've gone through the scriptures each and every week. And I know I've harped on it because honestly, this is still kind of part of the introduction to where we're going. But it's, it's getting to the point that we accept who we are in Christ. It's not enough to just know it. It's to believe it is truth. Because if you believe it is truth, you will carry yourself with a little bit of distinction, with a little bit of, of authority as you walk around in the earth. If God told us that we are to walk around in the authority of, of himself, that means that we should carry on what he did. So when, when, when God told uh, Adam, he said, listen, here's what I need you to do. You're to reign over the entire garden, and I want you to expand the garden. Okay, don't just settle there. But he gave him a job. And he said, here's what I need you to do. In other words, the world was his oyster. It was all his. It belonged to him. He'd given him the authority over it. So anything that happens there had to happen because he allowed it to. That was the only way it worked. It's no different here. And I'm not talking physical things, okay? I am talking from a spiritual standpoint of who we are in Christ. Because there are things that we should be doing. And so as we get into this, let's jump back to Colossians chapter 3. We read this every week. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Now again, I know I've hammered on this, but I want to bring it up one more time. Is that to be raised with Christ means that you had to die with Christ. Because it is expanding on what he had said in the previous chapter. That at the time of the cross, those who give their lives to Christ and become what we call born again. That's what Jesus called in John chapter 3. That you were raised with him in his death in the fullness of his glory and we are sitting at the right hand of God where Jesus is we see that in Ephesians 2 we watch in Acts chapter 1 as he ascends we know where he's going set your minds on things above not on things of the earth for we, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God when Christ who is our life appears then you also will appear with him in glory so it just told us we died this can't be physical right why would you write a letter to a church that's all dead doesn't make any sense, right? He's talking spiritually. You died spiritually and you were made new. Therefore, verse 5, put to death your members which are on the earth. Okay, now there's the distinction. On Wednesday night, we've been going through the book of Revelation and it keeps mentioning these earth dwellers, which is an idiom to an unbeliever because we are in this world, but we are not of this world. That's what, what they said in the Bible, right? We're in it, we're not of it. Okay, we're in him. So the member that is on this earth is referring to your body. That is what we are to be putting to death, to crucify it daily. Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, because these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. You notice it doesn't say flesh. It talks about all the things that your flesh does, that it wants to do. This outer person, I know this is weird and I know this is confusing and I know we're using a bunch of churchy lingo, but you've got to get this. It is a clear distinction between the man that God has made you and the one that is on this earth. There is a clear distinction. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, Barbian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. New man, old man, right? Old man still lives as far as this goes, but that new man died with Christ on the cross, was resurrected with him, is made into the image of God. This what you see is not the image of God. We like to think that way, but that's not what it's telling us. The new man was created. It was not recreated. It was not made better. He didn't fix it. It died and was brought new. With God. Therefore, whatever its past was no longer exists. It is gone. This is why when we talk to people who give their lives to Christ, it's forget about what happened prior to this day. When you give your life to Christ, you are now made new. What happened before is irrelevant. It's what we do from here. Okay? We are made for good works, not by them. We are created in His image. And then we jump over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 
For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Now, this is Paul speaking. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. And if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore... From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Why is that the case? Because he's not here anymore. They knew him when he was on the earth, but he's not here anymore. So we don't know him that way anymore. They regard no one according to flesh. How do we regard each other? According to what we say, according to what we do, not who we are. This is why Paul goes to painstaking uh, 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 words here to just get across that. It doesn't matter if a rich man walks in. Don't give him the best seat. Treat everybody equal because in Christ we are all equal, right? So your checkbook does not determine what your status is with God. It might on this earth. Who you hang around with, what your background is, that all might matter here. But as far as God is concerned, it doesn't make any difference. We are created new. Now, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, if he calls you a new creation, are you? The answer is yes. We are exactly who he says we are. Created in his image. Now remember, I've said this before, I'm repeating this. This new creation is this, it's the, the Greek word metamorphosis, where we get that word from. And it's the image of a, a, a caterpillar going into the cocoon. It doesn't just go in there and sprout wings and become a butterfly. You ever notice they don't look anything alike? Because what actually happens in that cocoon is it becomes this big ball of goo and then recreated, this whole new thing comes out. That is the image that's going on here. Do you think that thing was alive in the puddle of goo? I don't know. I don't think so. That's weird, right? Right. We're melting caterpillars. That's weird, right? Some of you have tried this when you were younger. Got the old magnifying glass out. Let's see if we can fry these puppies. No? Okay, fine. But maybe I'm alone in that. Y'all are looking at me weird. But, but, I mean, I never did that either is what I mean to say. Um, but... This thing is, it's, it's died with Christ and it is made brand new. All things have become new. The old things have passed away. Not passed away like they went somewhere, passed away like they died. They're gone. Verse 18, now all things are of God. What are these all things? The all things are the spirit that he has created, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. So we know how he did it, right? He brought us to himself through Jesus and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and he was not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. In other words, the job that you and I have to do. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know what the best part of this entire thing is? How much work do you have to do to make this happen? The answer is zero. You cannot earn this. You can't do enough good things to be made right with God. On the flip side, you can't do enough bad things to become wrong with God after you become new. You're created new. Your spirit will not die again. It died with Christ. We have to understand this. And so this is the work that Jesus came to do. He came to destroy the works of the devil. That's what 1 John tells us, right? What do we see with those were? That is sin. By destroying sin, from sin brought death into the world. Sickness is brought with there because what is sickness? It's slow death. Okay? If your immune system is not working right, a cold can kill you. Right now, a cold may just irritate you. It might make you a little grumpy for a couple of days, but it's not going to kill you. Because God has put provisions in our own body to fight these things off. But you eliminate that, it can kill you. Anything could. So he eliminates all of this stuff. Therefore, we are not subject to these things anymore. And as we saw, is the understanding of all of this. The key that unlocks everything is the in him statement. Because it's in him that we are made new. It is in him that we are made righteous. It is in him that all things belong to us. It's in him. You eliminate in him, you are not right with God. It's in him, not in us. We can't do enough good things to make that happen. So then we begin to say, and this is where we're going, is that we started last week looking at it in him because we know what Jesus did on this earth, right? We read the Gospels. We read about what he did. The problem is, is what was he doing before that and what is he doing right now? Because it's this ultimate chess match. As you're going to see as I, I go through this today, is that God was putting the pieces in place 
Christ is on every page of your Bible. The Old Testament, the New Testament. He didn't just appear in the book of Matthew and be like, hey, surprise, I'm here. It was all being laid out by him. In John chapter 5, verse 39, it says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. The entire scripture that he's talking about here was what we call the Old Testament. That was the scripture that they had, specifically the Septuagint. They would search them, trying to say, what can we do to find this, this key to get everything right? He's saying, you're looking at him. It's through me that you will have life. So we started at the beginning, looking at Jesus' involvement in creation and going through that. And then you see in, in, in the uh, Genesis chapter 6 with Noah and the boat, that when Jesus is literally in the boat saying, come into the ark. This is where he is. And then he sealed the door, protecting those who were found righteous from the judgment that was coming. That unlocks a whole bunch of stuff that we're not going to go into. But then from there, we see the whole Tower of Babel thing with Nimrod and all this other stuff going on. And then we see the call of Abraham, who was the first Israelite. He made a promise to Abraham and said, you will be the father of many nations. And anybody who blesses you, I'll bless. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. That never changed. That hasn't gone away. It's still going on today. And praise God for a president who finally recognizes that. I mean, there's uproar and upheaval over there all the time. And people are coming against him for now calling Jerusalem the, uh, the capital of Israel. I'm sorry. All of history agrees with that. So, if the, what God said is true, is blessing, I'll bless those who bless you, then guess what? There should be good things coming to this country. And that doesn't necessarily mean financial. That's where our mind goes. But on top of that, I also think, and I said this Wednesday night, is that I think these are the types of things that will unlock the end times as we get ready for the return of Christ. Because where America goes, the rest of the world follows. It's a matter of time. So praise the Lord for that. Boy, am I off subject here. Anyway, back to Abraham. He was the one chosen by God. And God said, here, here's what I need you to do. And he goes through all the stuff. He cuts a covenant, an unbreakable bond with him that made a promise to the entire world. And so, and then from there, we, we get into, uh, the, well, Israel specifically, uh, but, but a guy named Jacob, and we got into all of that. And we ended with Moses last week. Moses being the Redeemer, and where God was, and the Passover lamb, how that was Jesus, and how there's this cloud by day and fire by night, and he takes them through the Red Sea. And all of this, which is amazing, is all of this takes place and it's all backed up in archaeology because you can find these things. Go in the Red Sea. There's a whole bunch of chariots found at the bottom of the Red Sea. How'd they get there? Gee, I don't know. Maybe they're really bad drivers and drove into the water, right? Must have been women driving, right? No? No? Okay. I thought it was funny. I apologize. Lord, I'm sorry. Here we go. But here's the thing, guys, is that we see all of this going on. It's like, here he's moving to pieces a little bit at a time. What would have made sense to me is he snaps his fingers and, hey, it's all perfect again. But he didn't do that. The reason he doesn't do that is we have free will. We must choose him. And we've chosen him. Israel was set apart as the nation to usher, usher in the Messiah. And that's where all of this is ultimately going. But watch as he puts these pieces in place. So we get Moses. Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. Why does he not get to do that? Well, there was two things that took place. He, the people were thirsty. They were griping and complaining. Did you bring us out here to die of thirst into the, into the desert? And so what did God tell him to do? He said, I want you to strike that rock. Strike it. Water will come out of it. I don't know if you've ever seen that happen, but it hasn't worked for me. Okay. But sure enough, that happens. They get to another place again that they see, you know, hey, we're thirsty. Well, what did you bring us out here to die again? So God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to speak to the rock this time. You only need to strike it once. Speak to it and the water will come forth. What does he do? He strikes it again. What we don't realize is that very thing is the image of Christ. First of all, in 1 Corinthians, it tells us that that rock that followed them, that brought that spiritual drink, was Christ. But if that rock was Christ, does Christ need to be struck more than once? No, he does not. Because after he's struck, then all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. You speak to that rock and you receive salvation. You guys see how that's an image of Christ? I didn't go into that part last week. But now we're getting, Moses is gone. He's dead. We get to a guy named Joshua. Now Joshua's a warrior. And he's going to take him into the promised land. But it wasn't just like he just walked in and said, hey, y'all, I'm here. Uh, why don't you leave your houses? Leave all your goodies behind. We'll keep that. That's not how this works. Let's look at this. Joshua chapter 1. Verse 1, after the death of Moses, in case you didn't know, 
The servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, that be the river, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. As I said to Moses, from the wilderness to this Lebanon, as far as the great river and river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. So if you ever wonder where that idea comes from, here it is. Now here's, let, me, let me just pause here for a moment. Because these are big words coming from God. Moses and God are like this. They are tight, right? Everybody goes back and uses the Exodus account. The Israelites always go back and look at that. As, and, and God always says that I was the one that brought you out of Egypt. But Moses had a bond with God. He was an intercessory. He was a picture of Christ, the one that goes between there. And so there was this bond there. But Moses got them to the Jordan, but couldn't take them through it because of his sin. So Joshua is what's going to lead them here. And what's amazing with this, it says that every place that your foot touches, that land will be yours, right? The same things were said before. This is all, this isn't new stuff. They have now found stones around what they believe is the actual Mount Sinai where the, uh, Noah's Ark would have landed. A bunch of stones with feet drawn on them. Because how would you mark out this territory? They didn't have GPS. So it was like they were leaving these stones behind. Here's where our foot tread. Here's where our foot, this land is ours. I don't know. Is that a coincidence? Oh, it could be. Does it match the biblical account? Yeah, it does. That's interesting, isn't it? All right, let's look at verse 6. Be strong and of good courage, for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do all according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is so powerful and yet so simple because what did God just tell Joshua? You lead this people, you're going to take them into the land, you're going to divide it the way that I tell you to because remember there's 12 tribes that each get a section. The Levites don't own land but they get cities to which they reside in and so you're going to go in and do this and now here's what you got to do. Here's your end of the agreement that you keep this book of the law and do not depart from it. That's it. Why? Because the, Mo the covenant cut with Moses was that, hey, Israel, you will be my people. I will be your God. Your God. All you got to do is do everything that I tell you. Keep all of these laws and you will prosper. But if you do any of them wrong, then you will not. So it's really simple. And they agreed to it. Hey, yeah, according to all that you've said, we will do. So they had an agreement. Did they do it? Of course they didn't. They broke it the same day, pretty much. I mean, Moses is coming down with the Ten Commandments. Hey, guys, look what I brought. And they're down there worshiping golden cow, right? Like, it didn't take them long to screw it up. You got them out of Egypt. Egypt was still hanging around them. So he's telling them, like, here's what you need to do. This is real simple. I'll go before you. Keep my commandments. That's all you got to do. I'll take care of the rest, right? Because God is going to go before them and fight their battles. They will prosper as long as they're keeping the book of the law and doing what God tells them to do. It's so simple. But yet, they still are going to mess it up. That's what they do. But Joshua is a great leader, and he's a very, very good picture of how Jesus brings us through all of this. Now, let's jump over to chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1, because now they've sent some spies. We, you can call them witnesses. In the book of Hebrew, it calls them witnesses. Here it says spies. All right? Verse 1. Now Joshua the son of Nun sent out two men from the Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. This is where they're starting. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab. That means prostitute. And lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them, the woman being Rahab. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I don't know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. 
But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax which, had laid, which had, she had laid in order on the roof. Then the men pursued them by the road of the Jordan to the fords, and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. I mean, guys, this is a, a major citadel here. This thing has got huge walls. They didn't just, like, walk through the front door very easily. They are sneaking in there. They find this gal named Rahab. She goes beyond the expectation and hides them there. Verse 8, Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land. How does she know that? It's interesting that the terror of you has fallen on us, that all the inhabitants of the land are faint hearted because of you. Now that's they're freaking out. They're shaking in their boots. Here we go. Verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven, above and on the earth beneath. Powerful words for somebody who is not worshiping Yahweh. Now at this point, they still don't call him Yahweh. But the bottom line is this, is that they've heard about what happened with the Israelites and how their God brought them through. Word traveled fast, right? These guys are freaking out. So when it says their hearts melted, that is not a light term like, well, we're a little nervous, right? I mean, this would be like, you think about hearts melting. Go back to the 90s when Nebraska was beating up on Oklahoma, right? OU's hearts were melted because they're like, oh, we can't handle this. Is it sad I got to go back to the 90s to find a glimmer of hope? Okay. But, I mean, guys, they're freaking out. And she knows and said, your God has given you this land. This is your, she recognizes, she knows what is going on. So here we go. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sister, and all they have and deliver our lives from death. So the men answered her, our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Who gives them the land? The Lord. Okay. Then she let them down by a rope through a window from her house was on the city wall. For her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, get to the mountain lest the pursuers meet you. Hide three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. So the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your own home. So it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head, if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from your oath, which you made us swear. So you've been setting up the, the guidelines of the deal. Everybody needs to be in this house. If they go out, deal's off. That rope's not in the window, deal's off. But other than that, it is guaranteed protection that they will protect these guys, that nothing will befall them. Now, this is what's interesting. Rahab is important. You need to take, keep that name in mind for a moment because I'm going to show you guys something about her that often gets overlooked and how powerful this moment is. So from this point on, these two witnesses, they head back. They hide for three days like they're supposed to. They get back there, and then it goes, and they tell Joshua everything that's going on. So they get ready. They go to cross the Jordan, and they set up all these memorials there. You know, which is what they, they do, a place that they worship. They set up the different stones for the 12 tribes. They go across there. They're getting ready to go in. But the first thing that they do before they go in is they circumcise all the men who were born in the wilderness. Because while they're in Egypt, they were done that. But while they were traveling, it happened. Why is that important? That is the sign of the covenant that was promised to Moses. That you will circumcise your firstborn. That is a sign to them. That the seed of that man will pass through the sign of that covenant. Therefore, making a people... Uh, uh, for him. That is why that was done. So they take time out to do this. Why are they doing that? Because it is God that's giving them this land. So it better be done his way. What do they have to do? Be obedient. That's it. So Joshua chapter 5 verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold a man stood opposite him with the sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us? Are you for our adversaries? And he said, No, but as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. 
And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Who is this commander of the army of the Lord? This is Jesus, folks. This isn't an angel. Jesus himself, he's standing there with his sword drawn. Who's getting ready to go out there and do this fighting for him? It's Jesus. He's right here. Now look what happens in chapter 6 and verse 1. Now Jericho was securely shut up because the children of Israel, none went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its kings and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do for six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, the ark of the covenant. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. These are very weird instructions, not typically the art of war. Okay, this is not how you typically go to battle. They kick down the door and they siege the city. But here they're going to walk around it once a day. Not real complicated. And then on the seventh day, they're going to go around seven times. And at the end of it, they're going to blow the trumpets. They're going to scream real loud. Weird battle, right? Not like if, if, if think about this during World War II, if one of the, the generals had come up, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to shoot at the enemy. We're just going to walk around him and scream real loud, Right? They would remove him from his post and seek psychological counseling because that's weird. That's not what you do. But the Ark of the Covenant is going before them. What is the Ark of the Covenant? Inside that Ark, right? Remember Indiana Jones. You got the Ten Commandments, you got Aaron's Bunning Rod, and you got a jar of manna, okay? Representing God's law, representing God's power, and representing God's provision. All of this stuff is represented in there. And the mercy seat, which is the lid that sits on top of it, is the very throne of God. Therefore, God is going before them with all of this. So, in verse 20, it says, So the people shouted. So they did the thing. They did it all that time. The people shouted when the priests blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, that the people shouted with a great shout. That wall fell down flat. Then the people went up to the city, every man straight before him. And they took the city, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. So they did exactly what they were supposed to do. The wall came down, right? They found Jericho now, and they have no explanation of why the walls fell forward. That's not how it works. But yet something happened there causing them to fall apart. Was it poor craftsmanship? I don't think so. So they did exactly what God said to do, and God did exactly what he said he would. Verse 22, But Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. And the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, and her brothers, and all that he ha she had. So they brought out all the relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out, the, spy out Jericho. And remember, whenever this person is writing this, it's saying Rahab is still with us. Now that's important. Joshua is a warrior. And he is taking the land that was promised by God. Now, this Rahab character is extremely important. Just keep her in mind here going forward. But what we saw here is the angel, he's going to go out and he's going to take the rest of the land. And it says that the angel of the Lord comes and stands before them. And he goes and does the battle. He's constantly there. This angel of the Lord is Jesus again. And you'll see this here later. But the angel slews the enemy. There's times where he sends down large hailstones, wiping out the enemy. There's a time where the battle was going a little bit long. And so the sun actually stands still. And amazingly enough, that when they trace all of this back, because of, of Kepler's law of, of gravitational force and the motion of the, the planets, that they can go back and look at a time which the sun did not move the way it was supposed to. Well, the sun doesn't move, but you know what I'm saying there. And so look at this map. This is the area, all that in pink, is the area that Joshua ends up conquering. All of that in green is yet to come. But, I mean, he got after it. Remember, these are people that just had fled out of bondage. But they, were, they had all the provision that they needed. And so he goes in there and they conquer this land to begin to divide it up between the 12 tribes as God had told them to do, doing exactly what he said to do. And then one thing that they did, which is interesting, they set up these things called cities of refuge. 
There were six of them. Now, if you remember when we went through the Emmaus Road, we went in depth of this, how this is a picture of Christ. But let me briefly talk about this. The Cities of Refuge was a place that a person could go when they accidentally murdered somebody. What I mean by accidentally, what we would call second-degree murder. They're swinging their axe, the head falls off, and it hits somebody in the head and kills them. Then what would happen is somebody in that, that, uh, that family would go after them seeking their blood for their family members. They would call themselves the avenger of blood. And so they would go out there and try to kill them. And this person could flee to one of these six cities and could stay there. And the avenger of blood could not come in there and touch them. If he did, if he attempted to, he could be killed and executed for that. So they were protected there. And they were released from this, uh, this city of refuge so that they could go back to their normal life once the high priest died. Okay? That's an exact picture of Christ because Jesus Christ is our high priest, right? So the avenger of blood, the enemy, has a right to us because of sin. But once that high priest dies, that we are released from that, and he has no longer has a right over us. You guys see how that works? I know I'm going through it fast, but I don't want to rehash that again. I want to move on from here. And so we see throughout the book of Joshua all these things, the land being divided, they're constantly expanding. And then we get over into the book of Judges. Now, Judges is, is ultimately setting up uh, the room for a king to be over Israel. But these judges are basically deliverers. And so let's look at Judges chapter 2 and, and start in verse 1. It says, Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. Now hold on. This angel of the Lord, we saw the commander of the Lord's army, the angel of the Lord, same thing. Who brought him up out of Egypt? Is this just an angel? No. God brought them up out of Egypt, right? He's speaking back to this time. That's how we know that this isn't just some angel. This is Jesus himself. And I said, I, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, and you shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your sides. Now this should give us an idea of what Paul is referencing, right? Anyway, and their God shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. This is an exact picture of the entire book of Judges. Basically what happened is Israel would forsake the covenant. They'd start worshiping other gods or doing whatever they weren't supposed to do. So God would send judgment on them. Then they would cry out and they'd say, God, we're so sorry. So God would send a judge or a deliverer. And as long as they were alive, that judge, that deliverer, that they would bring them out of this and they would live happily and peacefully until the time that they would die. And then they'd start everything all over again because they'd, they'd break the covenant once again. So Judges chapter 2, verse 11, and here's how it breaks down. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, Baals being the false god. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Asterisk, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into their hands... Uh, into the hands of plunders who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. And as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved with pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings, own doings, nor from their stubborn way. So basically, again, you this is Israel pretty much throughout time, right? They would do good, they'd follow the commandments of God, they'd start to break them. God sends judgment, raises somebody up. We're so sorry. God delivers them out of it. Time and time and time and time again. There were a number of judges: the Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jer. Jephthah, Ibsen, Elon, Abdon, maybe a guy named uh, Samson too, right? He was a deliverer. He was, he was one of these judges. These guys were raised up, brought the people out. The ones we're familiar with, Gideon and Samson. Those are the two big ones, right? And, of course, Deborah goes in there because she was the only woman. But, 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 I mean, the bottom line is, is we know how these things work out. We, we've heard of these different stories. But that's the premise of what God's doing. He's putting the pieces in place to get them where he needs to be. 
So then you get out of the book of Judges and you get into the book of Ruth, right? There are three main characters in the book of Ruth, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. Those are the three mains. And now this book, as you guys, when we, we went through this in the Emmaus Rose, is that it, this is in a picture of the church and everything that's gone through history. Because when you look at Naomi, she is a type of Israel. When you look at Ruth, she was the Gentile bride. You've got Israel and everybody who isn't is Gentile. Gentile bride, and she is a picture of the church, and of course, Boaz as that near kinsman redeemer, the one that had to redeem the one back and take her as the bride. He is a picture of Christ. It's through Naomi that Ruth learns the ways of Boaz, and it's with Ruth and Boaz is the one that makes the way ultimately for Israel to come back and cry out for the Messiah. I don't want to go through all of that again, but guys, this is a picture of exactly the gospel and what's going on and what we see through time. You get through Ruth and you come to a king named Saul. The premise of this is the baby is born to Hannah and she commits that if you'll give me a son, then I'll have him serve you all the days of your life. So she dedicates him to the Lord. Who was that son? His name was Samuel. He was a prophet. And so a lot of different things that go on in the life of Samuel, but ultimately he is the one that anoints Saul. Now, prior to Saul being king, who was the ruler over Israel? It was God. There was no king. And that's the way that God designed it. Now, in Genesis 49, he does say that there will be a scepter that rules over you. But for the time being, it is supposed to be God. But that's not good enough for them. They want a king so they can be like the other nations. And God warns them of what will happen if you take a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 10. It says, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots, and he will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields for your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants and your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in this day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but we will have a king over us, and we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. They're clamoring for a king. They want to be like every other nation. But the problem was, is God had separated them from every other nation. You're not to be like anybody else. You are my people, and I am ruling over you, and you just follow me. And it was really simple. What do they have to do? Keep the commandments. God takes care of the rest. That's all they had to do. But they wouldn't do it, and they wanted this king. And so we know how the story goes, right? Saul becomes the king, starts off pretty good, doing all right, quickly disobeys. They go in there, and they conquer a city. He said, listen, you leave all that behind. Well, did they leave all the, the, the pillaging behind? Nope. They brought the sheep, they brought the goats, they brought the gold and all that kind of stuff. So God tells Saul that you ain't going to be the king no more. And what does Saul say to Samuel the prophet? And say, well, no, we were going to sacrifice this for you, Lord, because this is to give to you. And then, of course, it was, oh, it was the people that took. It wasn't my fault. But the bottom line is he said, nope, you're done. Your time is coming near. Who's the next king to step up? It's going to be King David. Now, this is the man that God chose. And he calls David a man after his own heart. Now, David will serve Saul, but Saul remains king, and there's this animosity that goes on. Now, watch this in chapter 16 of verse 11 of 1 Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes, referring to David. So he sent and brought him in. He says, now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. You want a good looking king, right? Studly. That's what you want. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. From that day forward, the spirit of the Lord was upon him. Okay? It was on him. Now, we know David as David and Goliath. We know that whole story. But there he was serving Saul as a servant. He becomes a general. And David becomes king after the death of Saul. 
Now, he starts off as the king of just in Judah, but eventually all of Israel is going to come and follow him. And he'll eventually take over Jerusalem, and he'll set up shop there, and it's going to be called the city of David. And that's important because that is where all of this begins as far as Jerusalem. And thank God for a president that recognizes that. But he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and there is celebration that goes on and whatnot. But let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 4. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Well, let me back up here. Well, now let's read this. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. So he's wanting to build a structure. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold and following the sheep to be a ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges, to be over my people, which we just talked about briefly, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, he will chasten him with a rod of men, and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you, and your throne shall be established forever. You see, he's wanting a house to be built for him, which is what we call the temple. And we'll see that in a minute, but here's what's going on. He makes a promise to David. He's saying that somebody is going to sit on your throne for perpetuity, for all of time. This is this what we call the Davidic covenant. This is a promise made to David, not with David. Okay? Because David could have broken. In fact, it should have been broken because he screwed up, but it can't be broken because it was made for him and not with him. Now, David's going to expand Israel. He's going to conquer a bunch of land. He's a man of war. He's a battler. He goes out there, and he makes things happen. But we know this story, a little thing called David and Bathsheba, right? In 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, it says, in verse 24, it says, And David comforted Well, let's back up. Let me tell the story, just make sure everybody's on the same page. David is supposed to have gone out with the armies of Israel, and he did. He stayed home. The kings would go out. That's why they wanted a king, a king that would go out and battle for them and lead them. But David stayed home. He should have been gone. He sees Bathsheba out there bathing, calls her in. You guys know the rest of the story. She has an affair. He sets up Uriah, who is her husband, to be killed in battle to make it look like an accident. Okay? He gets the job done, and she is pregnant. And so that child dies. David is mourning. He is, he is beside himself, but knows that he must go on. And so he takes Bathsheba as his wife. And verse, chapter 12 and verse 24 says, Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him. This is the son born after the one that died. He goes in there and he comforts his wife. David was a screw-up. He made tons of mistakes, this just being one of them. But yet God calls him a man after his own heart. And why does he call them that? It's because David was always quick to repent. Whenever the Lord called him out through Nathan, the prophet or whatever, he said, I have missed God. I don't know. I'm so sorry. And he made things right. But to him, Solomon is born out of an illegitimate marriage, if you will. Now, Solomon is different than his father because he's not a man of war, he's a man of peace. David does not get to build this temple because there's so much blood on his hand. But Solomon will build the temple. And we see in 1 Kings chapter 1, it says, Then David answered and said, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king took an oath and said, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from every distress, just as I swore to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon your son shall be king after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place, so I certainly will do this day. David's getting ready to die, and he says Solomon is going to be my heir to the throne, but yet there were older sons that had a right to that throne, and yet he did not 
followed protocol, if you will. He chose Solomon. Solomon is the one who gets to reign, and he's going to build the temple. In 1 Kings chapter 5, it says in verse 3, it says, Now you know, this is Solomon speaking, You know how my father David could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which, wars which were fought against him on every side until the Lord put his foes under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor evil occurrence. And behold... I propose to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. And the Lord spoke to my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, he shall build the house for my name. Going back to that covenant, that promise. Now, therefore, command that they cut down cedars from me from Lebanon. And my servants will be with your servants, and I will pay you wages for your servants according to, who, to whatever you say. For you know there is none among us who has the skill to cut timbers like the Sidonians. You see, David paid for all the things necessary for the temple to be built. He bought the land. He had, he had all the bricks hewn. All of that stuff was done. The money was there. All Solomon had to do is make it happen. And so when you look at this picture, there's a picture of the temple here. Nope, the, there you go. This is a picture of Solomon's temple. Now before this, what were they doing? They had the tabernacle set up. It was a tent, basically. Now this thing is glorious. Here you've got the altar. Here you've got the uh, brazen laver, as well as some other things. And then you've got the, the porch with the bronze pillars. All is outside of the temple is bronze. Bronze is a sign of judgment. When you go inside, it's all gold. Gold is redemption. Gold is refined. Gold is perfect. You got the holy place in which you had the table of showbread, the different menorahs, and then the altar of incense. And you go up here into the most holy place where you've got the Ark of the Covenant and you've got these two big uh, cherubims on each side that are protecting the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had the mercy seat on top of it, which is where the throne of God. This is where the presence of the Lord resided. On one day a year, the high priest could go in there on the Day of Atonement. After making sacrifices for himself and doing all the things right, he would go in there and he would cleanse the temple from all wrongdoing that had taken place only on the Day of Atonement. And if he did not follow everything to a T, then he would die there in the presence of God because it had to be uh, holy. It had to be clean. Guys, there's all these pieces that have gotten moved around, getting to where bringing forth the Messiah because that's ultimately what is happening. The nation of Israel is the entire Old Testament bringing forth the Messiah. It's not like God's done with them now that Jesus is on the scene because it's their Messiah. We're brought in because of, of their not recognizing his time. But from this point on, with what happens with Solomon, I'm going to go through this briefly. Is Solomon, the, the, the nations get divided. Okay, you've got uh, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, ultimately leading to captivity. The northern kingdom first, the southern kingdom second, because of unfaithfulness. And they're taken into captivity, and they're left there in the Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. You guys kind of know that story where he went and captured them. That's just one piece of it. And so then, eventually, they're going to get to return from exile. They send a guy named Zerubbabel to build the temple. They send a guy named Nehemiah to build the wall. Right? He was the modern-day Trump. Got to build that wall. Sorry, I couldn't resist it. Anyway, so they come in there and are getting all the pieces put in place to bring Jerusalem back to what it was. Because without that temple, Israel cannot worship God in the way that they were commanded to. And so that temple is built. But also what you see is because of where they've taken him is there's a rise of Greek culture. Not every Jew comes back to Israel, comes back to Jerusalem. Some stayed. They had houses there. They wanted to do that. But you see this rise of Greek culture and philosophy. And essentially leading them to deny God. And what happens in between the book of Malachi and Matthew is what the story we talked about where Hanukkah comes from with Antiochus Epiphanes, where he was the ruler, he was the madman, he goes in there. A lot of the Jews just wanted to go with what the Greeks were doing. Because, hey, it was a lot simpler. They want to play in the, the games and do all these different things. And he ended up destroying this temple and wiping out many of the Jews. All of this bringing these people back to God, where we get into the book of Matthew, where we see that Jesus is born. We're at a point now where Herod is king. He's rebuilt them a temple. And he basically is a Rubabel's temple. But he rebuilds it in a way. And so they're at peace. But they're under Roman rule. But all of these pieces have been put in place by God. Jesus is in every page of this Old Testament, guys. It's this cosmic chess match that's going on. But let's go back and look. Remember I told you to keep Rahab in mind. Why is she so important? Why is that a big deal? She seems like an afterthought. Remember that this is a divinely inspired book and that there is nothing there on accident, all right? In Matthew chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 1, and this is some of those genealogies that I know you guys love to read. 
because they're, they're so inspiring because you really care who had what, right? Now, this is Matthew. He was Jewish. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amminadab. Amminadab begot Nishan. Now, Nishan begot Salmon. Okay? Now, who is Salmon? Salmon was one of the two witnesses that went in there and spied out the land. Now, watch what happens next. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. Why is Rahab important? She's the lineage of, the king, of King David. Through one of the witnesses that happened to be there, apparently um, while they crashed her that night, there was a candlelight dinner or something, I don't know. She was putting the moves on, but, but here we see this, this chess piece going on. Let's go on. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah, right? Bathsheba. Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abijah, Abijah begot Asa, Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah, another king. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Amon, and Amon begot Josiah, the Redeemer. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. Now we get the time frame, right? They're taken captive. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shelthiel, and Shelthiel begot Zerubbabel. He's the one that rebuilds the temple. Zerubbabel begot Abiad, Abiad begot Eliakim, Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Zodok, Zadok begot Achim, Achim begot Eliad, Eliad begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mathen, and Mathen begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. How important was Rahab? Do you think for one second that it was a coincidence that that happened to be the window in the wall that they showed up at? Absolutely not. You guys see how Jesus is laying out all the pieces all through time and how they intersect one another. Here you have a prostitute, and that's the one that they happen to show up to, and a guy named Salmon happens to marry her and have Boaz. I'd love to go back through the Boaz and Ruth and stuff. It's such a powerful story. Go back and read that and just picture Jesus on every page. But you guys see how Jesus was there working all the time. It's not like he just shows up at his birth. That's what we've got to understand. This in him concept was laid out from the foundation of the world and brought through his hand, his sovereignty to get to the point of his birth. But what happens after he's born? What does he do on this earth? Everything that he did on this earth should be a picture of how we live our lives and the work that we carry out as we carry out the ministry of reconciliation. And that's what we're going to get into next week, guys, is looking at the life of Christ and how that uh, has something to do with us. You guys see how powerful this Bible is? This is not just a boring book. This is why you should read those genealogies once in a while. You might pick up something kind of nifty. I don't know. Go home. Those are the ones that you should write on like on your mirror when you get up in the morning. None of this, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. It's like, no, Salmon begot Boaz. That's what you need. That's, I'm just kidding, guys. That's just a joke.